0: Welcome to Stuff Mom Never Told You from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Kristen. And I'm Caroline. And we're talking about women animators at Disney today. And the idea happened very much by accident one evening on Twitter When I had posted on StuffMomNeverToldYou.tumblr.com, our Tumblr account, this 1938 rejection letter that has been spread around the Internet. A lot of you listening have probably seen it, but it's this form letter that Disney sent out to women who applied to be animators, basically saying, and we'll read it verbatim in just a minute, but it basically says, "Ah, sorry, women don't do really any of the creative work. So, good luck. Yeah, it was
1: harsh. Like, if I'd received that letter, I would have been so disheartened.
0: But soon after, I posted it on Tumblr, got a tweet from a woman who wrote her master's on animation history. And she pointed out that while, yes, this is clearly a form letter that Disney actually sent out, there's a lot of misconceptions about women's roles at classic Disney, Mm -hmm. talking about back in the day of Bambi, Dumbo, Sleeping Beauty, Snow White. And she said that that was pretty much standard at Animation Studios in the 1930s period. And so I decided, hey, you know what? This sounds like a pretty
1: good podcast topic. It's a great podcast topic. I was definitely interested uh in reading all about how these women who were in the industry and, and the roles they play. I mean, these women worked so hard. The women who were actually hired by Disney, who loved the idea of working for Disney, people, both men and women who worked under him, were just enamored of the the idea of even working at Disney or Disney's as they called it, like it was a department store.
0: Yeah. Uh, and it's actually good timing that we're talking about this because not too long ago, Meryl Streep raised a lot of Hollywood eyebrows when she was giving this uh, sort of honorary speech for Emma Thompson in her work in Saving Mr. Banks, the recent film about Mary Poppins and Walt Disney. And, you know, Disney kind of made it in in, in a way to personify Walt Disney. But in the speech that Meryl Streep is giving at the National Board of Review awards ceremony, she calls Walt Disney a gender bigot and a lot of other things that aren't too kind. And the evidence that she uses, though, to back up this claim is a quote from Disney animator Ward Kimball, who allegedly said that Walt Disney, quote, didn't trust women or cats. Right. And she also cited
1: that. 1938 rejection letter as her reasoning. Um, But, yeah, Disney's attitude, its people. a lot of people on the Internet, um, both scholarly and not, argue about Disney's attitude towards women. You know, was he this gender bigot, as Meryl Streep says? Was he just a product of his times? You know, was he just afraid of losing his workforce to marriage and babies? There's a
0: whole lot of back and forth about it. So we also just wanted to take a minute, though, to shine a light on, on all of these women animators who rarely get any credit for these classic Disney films that were probably a a part of a lot of our childhoods. So let's start off with that 1938 Disney rejection letter. What exactly did it say? So basically this form letter was telling
1: the woman who had applied that, okay, so you can't Um, You can't be a, a major animator. Girls are not considered for the training school. And then it went on to explain that the work that was open to women specifically consisted of tracing the characters on clear celluloid sheets with India ink and filling in the tracings on the reverse side with paint according to directions. So how hard could that be, right? But when we were reading this Vanity Fair article about women at Disney in the early days, I mean, these are women who worked hours and hours and hours doing a lot of the what was called in-betweener work. So a lot of the movement, a lot of the in-between things between all the big action, showing what Goofy
0: was doing or showing what Bambi was doing. And like that Twitter follower pointed out, this was standard policy at Animation Studios. At the time, which is a little bit nuts when you consider that in the history of animation, it is actually a woman named Lottie Rainiger who's credited with directing one of the first feature length animated films in 1926. And it's called The Adventures of Prince Ahmed. And her animation is incredible. I mean, she, she actually uses, rather than drawing everything out as we would think of in a Disney film, she actually cut out silhouettes that she would move around Mm -hmm. on screen and it was it was insane what she was doing and yet in the 1930s oh no no no. women just no you stick to tracing and that's it right yeah it is interesting to look at that
1: 1926 blip on the overall timeline of animation because okay well so obviously women are involved in this from the get-go and they're interested in it and they can do it and they can do an awesome job at it But we need to give you some context. So let's do a brief rundown of, like, a Disney timeline. So the Walt Disney Company itself was started by brothers Walt and Roy in 1923 out in Los Angeles. Two years later, Disney opens their famous Hyperion Avenue studio location. And back then, it was all dudes, as photos from the time attest. And two years after that, in 1927... We have the first of, as Kristen pointed out, the nine old men, which were basically uh, Disney's main animators. Les Clark hired on as an in-betweener. And as we said, that's the people who draw all the stuff that appears between the normal action that is drawn by a lead animator. And in
0: 1928,
1: the mascot of all mascots, Mickey Mouse, is born.
0: So fast forward to 1937, and you have the release of Disney's first full-length animated feature, Snow White, and the Seven Dwarves. And all of the supervising animation is being done by those nine old men. And usually when you hear about classic Disney and you hear about the animations, a lot of times, up until recently at least, it's been the nine old men who, deservedly so, get a lot of credit for it. Um, And and side note, the reason why they were called the nine old men, uh, that was Walt Disney's Joking nickname reference to them, uh, riffing on how the Supreme Court at the time was referred to, I think by like FDR or something as the nine old men, because hey, guess what? It's 1930s and of course there were no women in the Supreme Court. Uh, so behind though that production of Snow White and the Seven Dwarves, you have this almost army of the, these women who were referred to as Waltz girls who mm-hmm. were doing all of that in between her work, all the tracing, all of the inking, a lot of the coloring and painting, essentially taking these incredible drawings that the nine old men would have been making and really bringing them to life on those celluloids for the screen. Yeah. And I think it's interesting the description of, of why and how all these
1: women were recruited. I think it's interesting how it kind of compares to, to World War II when we hear about women having to enter the workforce because there were so many gaps left by men. I mean, obviously it's not the same thing, but Walt Disney needed such a big workforce to animate these, these cutting-edge, new, never-before-seen types of films that he was like, we've got to get some labor in here. And so he did. He began recruiting these animation girls, many of whom had not gone to college, but they were trained in sort of animation classes. They sort of got, you know, trial by fire when they were hired. And when you look at the Disney animation system sort of at large, talking about training, it was sort of uh, almost like an apprentice master setup going on. Um, but for the women, where they would get kind of thrown in like, hey, you look like you're young and healthy and can handle long hours. Come on board and learn how to ink and paint and watercolor. They might have gotten classes, but they wouldn't have gotten the same types of
0: classes that the men got. And the reason why they were immediately funneled into ink and paint was because the inking training was sort of the, the base level that took mm-hmm. half the time of animation training. And in that Vanity Fair oral history of the, the women working on Snow White in particular, some said that, I mean, they would have to bring in some examples of their artwork, but some of them said that they were hired simply because they looked healthy, because Walt knew that it was going to be such a grueling process. That they were going to need to be able to work insane hours. Because when you think about it, this animation process back then was so time-consuming. So, for instance, one girl could do 8 to 10 cells per hour. That means that 100 of these employees could produce about one minute of film every day. That's how tedious this whole inking and painting process was.
1: Yeah, and so at the height of Snow White production, because you have to think, I mean, the context of this is that Snow White was the first thing of its kind, the first animated feature that was more than an hour and that involved all sorts of techniques that they were almost developing on the fly. How do we give her a better blush to her cheeks? Developing different techniques like that. And so um, these people, both men and women, were working 85-hour work weeks. There was one woman who was describing her life during that time, and she would go home after a long day, walk into the closet to take her clothes off, and it would suddenly occur to her, am I coming or going? Am I getting dressed for work or am I coming home from work? Sometimes they would just take pillows to work, not only to soften the hard wooden chair they were sitting in, but so that they could take naps.
0: Yeah, and just to give you a sense of what exactly they were doing, a Disney employment brochure at the time said... All inking and painting of celluloids and all tracing done in the studio is performed exclusively by a large staff of girls known as the inkers and painters. This work, exacting in character, calls for great skill in the handling of pen and brush. And again, it goes on to state, this is the only department in the Disney studio open to women Artists,
1: Right. And one and again, another woman who was uh, interviewed in that Vanity Fair piece was talking about how I did not smoke or drink or bowl during this time because you couldn't have your hands shake. But you also couldn't have your lovely angora wool sweater drifting like pieces of fuzz anywhere. And so the women started having to wear aprons. And so they didn't get finger smudges on anything. They had to wear these white, these thin white gloves and just cut off the fingertips of their drawing hand. So as reports go from the time, if you were to just wander into the inking and painting section, you would be like, wow, look at all these
0: high class dames working with their pen and ink. And it's because, though, there were so many Very young, usually well-dressed, attractive women in the ink and paint department that it became known as the nunnery. Because down the line, after the release of Snow White and uh, when Disney opened its new, bigger and grander studios, Walt kind of drew a line. Basically saying, hey, all you male animators, you need to stay out of the nunnery. There's too much canoodling going on because these women would also talk about how in the brief breaks that they would get from these 85 hour work weeks of inking and painting and tracing, et cetera, they would all go out onto the front lawn. And they would sometimes meet up secretly with their animator bows underneath yeah. trees and they, I, I don't know if they'd smooch or not. That sounds scandalous for the time.
1: Yeah. It, it, one, one guy described it as being like high school where you would go out and a lot of, there were a lot of marriages that came out of, of the Disney animation department to the point where a competitor in their like, materials to try to attract employees, even said that like, uh, you know, Disney, Disney over there with all their office romances, they're not getting enough work done because they were so famous for having all of these people get married, which makes sense when you're spending so many freaking intense hours with people.
0: Well, then there's a the question, too, of whether or not Walt Disney took advantage of the fact that he had dozens upon dozens of very young women working for him and there are some rumors that yeah absolutely there would have been some canoodling i keep saying canoodling on walt disney's couch but there were other women who reported back no no we always thought of him as uncle walt he was very professional we Mm -hmm. never would have crossed that line
1: well he married an animator i mean he married one of the one of the girls quote unquote from the early days back when like everybody was like cheers everybody knew your name yeah
0: and while Disney though definitely has his controversies involving his thoughts on race, gender, etc. there are some quotes that are typically trotted out in defense of his position on women. So, you know, we have to we have to mention this. In 1941, he said, "If a woman can do the work well, she's worth as much as a man. The girl artists have the right to expect the same chances for for advancement as men." And I honestly believe they may eventually Thank you. Contribute something to this business that men never could or would. And this he was apparently saying to the male artist working on Dumbo.
1: And many years later, in 1959, Walt was quoted as saying that women are the best judges of anything we turn out. Their taste is very important. They are the theater goers. They are the ones who drag the men in. If the women like it, to heck with the men, which sounds like, you know, advertising strategy baseline advertising strategy today where people are like if you target the women who are in control of the pocketbooks at home then the men will follow
0: exactly and that's those two quotes are you know a couple of reasons why when Meryl Streep made the comment about him being a gender bigot they took offense saying "Well, no he actually was on record as saying that you know women could be anything that they wanted to be in Disney but breaking through the celluloid ceiling Was no joke. I mean, you can say that it's a product of his time, but nevertheless, it's still kind of on the mark that there was a specific role that they were allowed to do. And it was it was kind of limited to that point. But it seems like once he saw the work that these women were doing and he spotted some of the talent among them, there were a few (laughs) emphasis on a few opportunities for advancement, particularly. When World War II happens, because just like in pretty much all other realms of employment in the U.S., a bunch of men leave and that opens up jobs for women. And so in 1941, in fact, the ink and paint department employees were invited to submit Donald Duck drawings for an animation department consideration. And out of that, three women were chosen to be trained as in-betweeners and background artists during World War II. And there were a number of other women, too, who had been working, for instance, on Snow White, who were put on uh, government-funded Disney jobs. There was a lot of Disney pro-U.S. propaganda that was coming out at the time, and so there were these kind of top-secret animation missions that some of the women interviewed in Vanity Fair were involved with but a lot of it was very shrouded in secrecy and half the time they didn't really know what they were working on anyway
1: yeah it turned out to be Donald Duck making fun of Hitler yeah everybody plays a part I guess so before we introduce you to some of these celluloid shattering ladies uh, who worked at Disney let's take a
0: quick break (laughs) and so when we left off we had Kind of laid the groundwork for what it was like for women working at Disney in the 1930s and early 1940s. And essentially, you were relegated to the ink and paint department. But there were some notable names who broke through that celluloid ceiling.
1: Yeah, so we have uh, Bianca Majoli, who was Walt Disney's story department's first female employee. She came up with the idea for Elmer Elephant, which was sort of the precursor to Dumbo. That was back in 1936. And it's sort of credited as, I I mean, Walt Disney was totally enamored with the idea, talking about how her story, all the humor of her story was really grounded in this heartwarming kind of almost serious story. And that's what made the humor not seem brittle or fragile, but actually heartwarming,
0: really. Yeah, yeah. And uh, in addition to the ink and paint department, the story department was another one where, even though it didn't say so in that Disney brochure, there were more opportunities for women to jump on board because uh, what was surprised, kind of, at Bianca's idea to humanize this Elephant. Mm-hmm. It was like an angle of storytelling that seemed particularly female to him. Like, oh, well, of course, a woman will go in and, and you know, and, and make something very, very tender and kind. And so that's, that's a nice element to add to these stories that we're trying to tell. Um, but then there's also Sylvia Moberly Holland, who first was working as a sketch artist at Universal and then joined on at Disney in 1938. And she eventually led the story team for The Waltz of the Flowers In Fantasia. And that was something that was uh, interesting for me to learn that I didn't realize about the animation process is that a lot of, uh, unlike a film with people in it, where you have this actress playing the role of this throughout the film, when it comes to animation, the animators are credited with, you know, maybe specific characters, but also just sequences in the film. It's not like you have one person doing one major thing throughout the entire movie. So it might not sound like a big deal that Moberly Holland just led the story team for this Waltz of the Flowers, but that was very significant. I mean, Fantasia was a massive undertaking for them as well.
1: Absolutely. I mean, it is pretty intense. I mean, Fant- Fantasia might have might have scared me as a kid.
0: Yeah. Parts of I it. did not get Fantasia as a child.
1: I was like, this is, if I had known what trippy meant, I was thinking, this is really trippy. Yeah. <laughs> like mommy, it's a bad dream. Okay, well then you have Retta Scott who I think um I like I like her her pluck, I guess, because she was assumed to be she's very tiny, a tiny person, blonde curly hair, freckles, very happy with a glint in her eye, people said She was the one who was responsible for the scary, vicious hunting dogs in Bambi. And when some of the dude animators saw these dogs, they were like, ah, there's no way a chick did this. Like, I'm sure it was some burly man over in the animation department. Nope, it was Smiley Little Retta.
0: Yeah, and it was those hunting dogs that got their attention and eventually got her the promotion into animation because she was first hired on with Disney again in the story department in 1938. But in Bambi, she became Disney's first credited female animator on a feature film. And so whenever you hear about women at Disney, the history of women in animation at Disney, Retta Scott comes up over and over again. I mean, she is the one that you hear really breaking through that celluloid ceiling because she was up there with, I mean, alongside those nine old men animating, not just doing the in-between work, not just doing the inking and painting. Mm -hmm.
1: So we also have Mary Blair, who, along with her husband Lee, worked at Disney. She started in 1940 and did some art for Dumbo and then moved on to serving as art supervisor and color stylist for the films Saludos Amigos, The Three Caballeros, Cinderella, Alice in Wonderland and Peter Pan.
0: Yeah, I mean, Mary Blair, probably of of all the women of this time, and, I mean, and even up to contemporary Disney, has been one of, if not the most influential, because it was really her art aesthetic that put Disney, like gave Disney animation a little bit more of a modernist flair. And through September 2014, the Walt Disney Museum is honoring her with an exhibit called Magic Color flair the world of mary blair and the museum explains that quote of all his artists this female artist was Walt's favorite and he allowed her to have as significant an impact on post-war disney style as albert herder had in the 1930s and they go on to talk about how her concept paintings inspired and influenced the look and style of all of the south american films she had actually traveled to south america with Walt, um, as part of sort of a propaganda mission via FDR's good neighbor policy. Um, so it, it was sort of like visual sourcing to go down there. And so that influenced the, the movies like Saludos Amigos and The Three Caballeros. Um, but it was also her aesthetic that she brought into Cinderella, Alice in Wonderland, and Peter Pan. I mean, think about those movies, how distinctive mm-hmm. they look. And that is Mary Blair.
1: And isn't she the one who Walt made the comment about Mary knows colors that I've never even thought of? Yeah. Like, she she has a different eye from the rest of us. And it was that same aesthetic that ended up influencing, say what you will about this, but It's a Small World for the 1964-65 New York's World Fair. I'm sorry. I know the song is in everyone's head now.
0: But when you think about Disney attractions, even though, yes, that song is... (laughs) <laughs> oh, God. Yeah, and it is now in my head. Um, But as an attraction, it's almost timeless. Like, we still associate it so much mm-hmm. with Disney. Although, I don't know. Maybe it's all Pirates of the Caribbean now.
1: <laughs> yeah, I, I would have no idea. I don't like crowds, and I don't like sticky things. And I feel like everything at theme parks is sticky. Yeah. Too much juice and cotton candy. But, okay, so we are talking a lot about Disney, and I think we we can move forward now into the modern day animation landscape, because I, I feel like it's getting better, even though there still is a huge gender gap and kind of a gap in a perception about what women can do.
0: Yeah, one of the most challenging aspects of this podcast topic was that finding sources on women in animation were surprisingly sparse, even though if you look at CalArts, which is the premier animation school in the U.S., like if you want to be an animator, you go to CalArts, and the animation students are, you know, it's 50% women, 50% men. And yet, if you look at the Animation Guild, only 17% of its members are female. But that might have something to do with Women, at least according to Linda Simensky, who was uh, Cartoon Network's VP of Original Animation, according to her, women are likelier to pursue independent rather than big studio animation.
1: Yeah, and I mean, part of that, if I had to guess, would have to do with the fact that a lot of women traditionally haven't been in the higher ranks of animation studios from the get-go, as we've seen. And so when you have a setup like that in any industry... I feel like people who are generally marginalized are more likely to go sort of that independent, kooky, creative route.
0: Yeah. And before I forget, I just want to mention that I was listening to one of my favorite podcasts recently, Professor Blastoff. And they were interviewing animator Sarah Pocock, who, if you are a fan of Cosmos, hosted by Neil deGrasse Tyson, she does all of the animation for that And I thought of her when I was looking at the animation from the episode of Cosmos in which he highlights, un, you know, unsung women in science. And I thought of Sarah Pocock and the fact that this was a woman in animation doing these animations about unsung women and how, you know, it was just kind of all time And then together. your head exploded with joy. Into the cosmos. <laughs> Into the cosmos. Yes, it's true. Um, but Marge Dean, who's the co-president of Women in Animation, was recently talking about this issue in 2013. And and the question was, you know, is there a gender gap in animation? Is there a lack of women at the top? And she basically said, uh, yes, absolutely there is. And the reason she gave for it is, she says, I think it comes partly from cultural assumptions that have been passed down that think women are not creative, smart, or funny, or because women aren't encouraged to take the artistic lead. Or maybe it's because the folks in charge don't try to find women to fill creative roles. It's not a priority for them to rectify the imbalance. It's any and all of those things. So it sounds like we still have a lot of 1930s Disney mentality still afloat in the industry. But there's definitely progress being made. Despite hiccups like the 2011 incident with Brenda Chapman, And the movie Brave. Right. So we all
1: know Brave with the amazing uh, redheaded lead character, Merida. Um, But yeah, Brenda Chapman was the first woman to serve as head of story on a Disney film, which was The Lion King. And she spent eight years at DreamWorks Animation, where she was one of three directors on 1998's The Prince of Egypt before moving to Pixar. But when she was working on Brave, she ended up getting fired from directing it.
0: And which is kind of a bummer considering that Brave was an idea that she had been working on for about six years and it was inspired by her daughter. So it seemed like a very personal project. Maybe it was so personal that it got in the way of the work. Who knows? But her getting pushed off to the side definitely caused, sparked a lot of conversation about the state of women an animation in big hollywood even though she still received a co-directing credit mm-hmm. so when they got the oscar she also got an oscar but it certainly you know it didn't make animation or pixar particularly look any better cuz pixar had also gotten some flack for its underrepresentation of just strong female characters in general on screen and also the roles of women behind the camera as well.
1: Yeah, well, speaking more about Pixar, the same thing happened to Jan Pinkava, who was directing Ratatouille, which came out in 2007, before Brad Bird came in and took it over, and ended up winning an Oscar.
0: Yeah, I didn't know that about Ratatouille. And I love that film. It is very cute. A little little bit of a bummer. Uh, But, as, I mean, another reason why we are talking about women in animation is, Right now is because Jennifer Lee, who directed Frozen, is getting so much press right now because Frozen is now the first movie, animated or not, directed by a woman to earn $1 billion. So essentially, everybody's saying, hey, look. Jennifer Lee did it with Frozen, a film that is starring like two female protagonists starring as though they're real women. Um, but although I'm sure they are very real to a lot of girls who watch the film, but essentially they're, they're saying that, hey, OK, if Jennifer Lee can do this then and, and make a billion with a B dollars off this movie, then the sky can be the limit. Surely, for women in animation. And she's also not the first woman to make her mark in terms of box office returns on an animated film.
1: That's right. Back in 2011, uh, Jennifer Yu Nelson was in charge of Kung Fu Panda 2, which, after making $645 million worldwide, was, until Jennifer Lee came along, the highest grossing movie to be directed by a woman. And in an interview, Nelson was talking about how, like, yeah, I'm a woman in animation. Uh, I just puttered along doing my thing, and I didn't really pay any heed to the the gender imbalance thing.
0: Yeah, and at the time, too, she also became the first woman to ever direct an animated feature for a major studio by herself. So unlike, for instance, Chapman co-directing Prince of Egypt, this was Jennifer U. Nelson, on her own. And she had worked on Kung Fu Panda 1, part 1. And the head of DreamWorks, Jeffrey Katzenberg, actually handpicked her out of that crew to lead up Kung Fu Panda 2. Because, uh, apparently Katzenberg loves, quote, working with strong women. Like, he is all about having women at the top in DreamWorks animation. It's sort of, um, he actually called out Disney in a quote to the Hollywood Reporter, on a story about how 85% of DreamWorks animation producers are women and a lot of their C-level leadership also women, he said, Historically, the animation industry was completely dominated by men. Disney, the nine old men, it was a male world. Until recently, the whole field of engineering, software, technology was also dominated by men. It's changing, and it's changing rapidly, especially at our place where almost every director of our films is a woman, And all the female directors directed at DreamWorks. Oh, and excuse me, that was uh, him talking to the L.A. Times. Nonetheless, a pretty incredible quote to hear from someone at that level, basically calling out Disney and the nine old men and saying, hey, you know what, I'm doing it a little differently.
1: And then he drops the mic. Yeah. Or the inking.
0: But I wonder, though, w- whether the environment for women working at Disney is different than women working at DreamWorks, whether that trickles down to the day-to-day process
1: yeah, at I don't all. Know.
0: I couldn't find, and maybe it's just because Disney, I'm sure, is very good with their communications and sort of their their message, public messaging mm-hmm. about what it's like to work inside the company. I didn't find any insider reports on how much the company had progressed from the days when women would have been relegated to the nunnery of ink and paint, whether there are, whether they're a lot more gender blind than they used to be. I'm sure they are at least somewhat. It has to be somewhat better.
1: Yeah. But, um, you know, I know we should never read the comments ever, but I was reading the comments under some of these stories about women in animation today And there were a lot of people who were saying like, what is so important about the push to get women animators up in front of young girls? Like, who cares? And I'm like, really? I feel like you you know how to answer this question if you think about it. And it's it's going to take people like Jeffrey Katzenberg. And, like, high-powered, top-tier directors like Jennifer U. Nelson getting up in front of people, being successful, being famous, and doing it to show girls that they can do it, too. But also, more importantly or not than that, is showing people who are in the box office, who are in charge of raking in the dough from all of these films, that women can successfully make a high-grossing
0: movie. Yeah, I mean, it's money that matters. Yeah,
1: it's money that matters. And, And... it just seems like Jeffrey Katzenberg is willing to put his money where his mouth is.
0: Yeah, and I mean, even going back though to those early days of Disney with Snow White, you mentioned earlier in the podcast the the, the blush coloring on Snow White's rosy cheeks. That was the little brainchild of one of the women in ink and paint, I believe, who said, "Oh, she looks so pale. She needs a little bit of blush in her she cheeks." Sounds like my mother. You look so pale you need blusher. <laughs> you need Just, a, she needs a little bit of blusher. But that's why in a way to diversity is a good thing because you bring in different perspectives and hopefully offer a better rounded story for your audience. That is a noble goal as is a good flush on the cheeks. Exactly. You need a good flush on the Cause cheeks. Cuz
1: that's hey that's how people got hired at Disney back in the day so. <laughs> yeah.
0: I mean and and if anything I hope that we've done our part a little bit. To shine some light on those women, so many of them who helped bring those early Disney stories to life because it's such a massive undertaking. And while, yeah, the nine old men, what a cool crackerjack group of men, but there were, you know, a hundred women behind them inking and filling in and tracing and painting and hoping that their Angora sweater fluff didn't get on any of the cells. That's right. Which that did, yeah, I mean, that happened. Yeah. So, now I'm sure there are some Disney buffs listening who have a lot of history to fill us in on because this by no means was a history of Disney, nor was it intended to be. But if you have some pertinent Disney insights to give us, we want to hear from you. Also, women animators listening. I know there are some of you out there who are listening right now let us know what it's like for you. Is there still this, uh, do you sense a gender gap at all in the profession? discovery.com is where you can email us. You can also tweet us at MomStuffPodcast or message us on Facebook. And we've got a couple of messages to share with you right now. So I've got a letter here from Amy about our military spouses episode. She writes... I'm a huge fan of the podcast, and as an Army wife of three years, your latest episode about military spouses was particularly interesting. You nailed it when discussing spouses being un- or underemployed. When I got my teaching degree, I never thought that finding a job would be an issue because everybody needs teachers, right? But after moving to our latest post, it's been a struggle. I actually found a job that I love working for a university, but it's only part-time and offers no room for growth. So I'm still sending out resumes and going on interviews, hoping to find a job as a teacher, even though the job market is hyper-saturated here. Also, I wanted to add that I'm thankful you included information about reintegration, the time after deployment when soldiers return home. After my husband's first deployment, we really struggled. Everyone else sees the joyful tears of a homecoming and think it's happily ever after. For those in the marriage, that happy ever after takes a lot of work. We had vastly different life experiences, and learning to just be took time. Throw in two moves in less than a year, time apart for field training in schools, and the usual unpredictable challenges of life, and it was ugly. We finally got into a rhythm, and my husband was sent back to Afghanistan in February of this year. The upside is that when he comes home this time, I'll have a better idea of what to expect. Thanks so much for delicately handling a potentially loaded topic. This episode was chock full of good stuff and really respectful. So thanks, Amy. And... Good luck with your husband's deployment. Best wishes for his safe return home.
1: And I have a letter here from Anne who says, I was a military spouse down in Fort Stewart, Georgia, for about 12 years. My husband got out of the military and we moved back to South Dakota. We have had to deal with numerous deployments overseas, three times to Iraq and twice to Afghanistan. Just about everything you spoke about rang true to me. I also had to deal with alienation from many of the spouses as well because I was one of the few who had no children. Most activities are centered around the children, so when you don't have any, you don't get invited to anything except for maybe once or twice a year. The rules were that everyone was supposed to be included in things, but this rarely happened. The healthcare benefits and financial aid in the military were extremely helpful many times, especially for a newlywed couple just starting out on their own. It can provide stability, learning responsibility, and independence from family. For those things, I was grateful. Due to the constant danger of him being deployed, kept me from wanting to have children in case anything happened. I lost a parent at a young age and didn't wish for my child to go through that. Luckily, we got through everything, and he is safe, and we are expecting our first child, a daughter, in August. One of the things that got me through the last few deployments was the numerous podcasts at Works. Thank you, guys, all of you, so much for helping keep my mind busy and from stressing out too much. So thank you, Anne, and I'm glad you guys are doing
0: well, and congratulations on your baby. And thanks to everybody who's written in to us. MomStuffAtDiscovery.com is our email address. And to find links to all of our social medias... Videos, podcasts, and blogs, there's one place to go, and it's stuff mom never told For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit howstuffworks.com. Netflix streams TV shows and movies directly to your home, saving you time, money, and hassle. As a Netflix member, you can instantly watch TV episodes and movies streaming directly to your computer, tablet, mobile device, or gaming console.
1: Get a free 30-day trial membership. Go to netflix.com slash mom and sign up now.